0: Welcome to the Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast where we discuss all things compounding and all things concerning independent pharmacy. Now, here are your hosts, Mike Delisio, North American Sales Director, and Sebastian Denison, Clinical Compounding Pharmacist. Welcome Compounding World and welcome to the latest episode of a Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast. This is Mike Delisio, joined as always with Sebastian Denison. Seb, how the heck are you? Really good, Mike. How are you? great came across really loud right there. I guess uh, you're enthusiastic to have one of your good friends and bosses here. Oh, yeah. It's, it's always fun. It is fun. AJ, welcome back. Thanks, everybody. How are y'all doing? I, I'm, I'm doing great. I'm going to introduce you just in case you have been featured on the podcast before. AJ Day, vice president of clinical services, been with the company for more than 12 years now. Uh, 16. There you go. Well, I don't know why I said 12. It's because you've been with us for 12. I know. And I figured he was just like past me, but I guess not. Four more years. Uh, AJ is a veteran now and definitely a veteran to the podcast. Thanks again for coming back, AJ. Whenever we talk about something either from a regulatory space, uh, from a formulation space, from clinical services, you've always been an individual that's jumped in and, and been willing to discuss topics that pertain to independent community pharmacy, specifically on the regulatory front. Today, we're going to do things a bit different, um, which I think is also going to be a focus on both of you. While Seb is a co-host of the podcast, the reality is majority of what he does um, in his job is helping out our members through our clinical services team. You being the vice president of clinical services and overseeing the department for a really long time, you have exposure and knowledge to everything that goes on behind the scenes from formulation development uh, to custom formulations, as you were mentioning earlier, but most importantly, really you are the hub of information and data as it comes in directly from our membership. So it's a big burden and it's a big responsibility, you know, in, in your world, what are a few things that maybe we have discussed in the past, but not really dug deeper into to giving our audience a better understanding of what really happens on the back end and and what's the marriage between our clinical services team and the formulation database as it's available to our members? You
1: know, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, I think when people come to our facility and they get to take a tour, they're generally pretty blown away by the formulation lab and the uh, the workspace and the team that gets to Operate in that area, creating all of those new formulations, testing and retesting formulas, updating them. So there's an entire team of amazing scientists and uh, and pharmacy technicians and um, PhDs and and all sorts of uh, different backgrounds that get to um, take part in that process. So as you talked about, we've got the clinical services team. We're the group of pharmacists who are answering those phone calls and you know hundred thousand calls a year that are supporting. The, the various compounders that are that are calling us for a broad variety of topics. So everything from uh, helping us identify what might be a viable clinical option for a given patient scenario to technical formulation assistance. How do I make something regulatory? You know, what are the considerations within 503A or within my board of pharmacy or USP that I need to take into account? Ingredient selection. Um, what what's the difference between A, B, and C? When it says USP, you know, what, what does that mean for me? Uh, how do I put this formula together? I've I've got uh, a master formulation record that I found in the a, a database, PCCA's database, or an IJPC article, or elsewhere online, and um, or it's been done this way for years uh, in in the hospital or in the pharmacy, and so i I need to make some tweak on it or I need to more um, officially formalize some of the data in there so that it's supported and meets the new standards within USP 795, 797. Um, help me understand some of those things. So we go through a lot of that stuff. In terms of the formula database, we've got a formulation development team that is phenomenal. The director of formulation development, Melissa Rhodes, is um, a pharmacist who really has an eye for detail. And the team that she works with, um, again, phenomenal, uh, absolutely amazing um, people working in the lab. And they put together and test formulas in various iterations to identify what's the best way to make something work and making sure that it is going to be implementable into um, kind of a broad scope of pharmacy environments, not just the best of the best, the upper echelon are going to be the only ones who can implement this. We need to make sure that it's more applicable to your general compounder. And the amount of testing, the amount of documentation that goes into that is is really significant. So if you notice on on the formulas that you look at in our database, you talked about the number of formulas that are there. There's a version number at the top of the formula. Our formulas are updated for a variety of reasons, which means they're retested. They're going back and revisiting the data, the instructions, the ingredients. Um, you know, in, in supply chains, sometimes changes are necessary. Um, they're not always Wanted, but sometimes they happen. So, when those changes happen, what are the implications for that formula and for the ability of the pharmacy in all corners of the United States or in other jurisdictions that that we're able to support to prepare that formula? So, sometimes we have to retest and we've got to bring in a new vendor of a supply. And uh, when that happens, re qualify that formula. So, there's a lot of work that goes into Creating formulas that go into our database as well as maintaining those formulas over the long run because regulations change, chemical vendors might change their process to make something, sometimes there might be a reason. Uh, that we have to change uh, vendors on a on a source of a material, we don't like to do that. We think consistency is really important to making sure that our patients' outcomes are consistent, that the pharmacy's experience is consistent. So the formulation data is consistent. However, sometimes it's unavoidable. So when that happens, we've got to have a process that we're um, – Retesting and and reevaluating, requalifying those formulations. So the machine, the machinery, we'll call it, that they've built on the formulation development side is a, a, a critical piece of the engine of PCCA.
2: I'm going to add to this because I know how the formulations team develops these formulas, and they're not looking at it as here's a theoretical formula and it should work. They all actually go to steps to ensure that it does work and it comes out with a consistent product. Because at the end of the day. You're downloading a formula from us and when we say it's available and it does work, we have this expected outcome for your patient in this fashion. We can't say that without actually doing it ourselves. And I have seen a lot of formulas out there that say theoretical formula. It has not been tested. And I see that a lot in some external databases. And when you go to use it, this is when we catch all the calls. Hey, I tried this formula and it didn't work. What do you think is happening? And we see a lot of the issues especially without some of the details that we see from our formulations team, all the adjustments, all of the, uh, tweaks and the actual realistic utilization of that information.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great point. You know, there, there's a lot of, um, of didactic research that goes into creating any of these formulas. Um, and then they will, purchase the ingredients and they add, we have an entire lab. And so they do the bench work. They create the formula in various iterations. They observe it for a period of time. We've also got a subset of formulas that we refer to as Formula Plus where – you know our our client base has identified these formulas as something that are of high importance where they need the ability to extend the beyond use date past the defaults in um in USP and so we've invested in doing the stability indicating assay with USP 51 antimicrobial effectiveness testing to extend that beyond use date so um you're right these are not just theoretical formulas there is the the component of formulation de- development that is From the textbook, it's the research, it's the theoretical, and then we translate that to actual. So we actually do prepare those formulations on the benchtop to know what works and to, you know, uh, be able to adequately advise pharmacies out in the field on you know here are some substitutions that you can use here are things that are unlikely to be successful um hey when you run into this here's here's the solubility limitation here's the experience oh you know think about this when you do it based off of our testing in the lab um you know when there's troubleshooting that the pharmacy experience and where they're following our formulation to the t we can send that formulation back to our lab say okay they're they're using the same ingredients, they're using the same process. Something's not working. Can we recreate the problem in our environment and if yes, then let's let's update that formulation and correct the issue? If no, then let's walk them through some troubleshooting tips because we've done it
0: i i I think as as complex as this seems uh, to our average audience listener it it probably appears that, you know, this is done across the board uh, amongst absolutely everybody in the compounding space. And that theoretical approach to the creation of a formula without that bench work also lends to our expertise. So I think I really want to highlight that before I go into my next question, because it I believe it's truly what sets us apart. and and A j, maybe you can also comment. When you've had the chance to, you know, to speak to USP directly and you know, or be part of the APC, you know, board of directors and, and really discuss the future of compounding and 503A and all of the significance around certain products that are being used. How often does it come up in regards to formula validation and, and what that really means that at the end of the day, there's data to support the creation of, of you know, a final dosage form? Using the active ingredients, using the proprietary bases, the excipients, whatever else goes into that final formulation, knowing that there's a theoretical piece, but there's also a practical piece.
1: This topic, you know, it, we get more questions about supply chain in, generally, in, in general, um, not as much in a public setting about the formula development in individual conversations that we have. Every single day, um, with facilities that are, you know, curious about PCCA's formula database, people that are coming through training, people who want to better understand what goes into the formula, so that they know what the limitations are and what they can rely on. You know, we have these conversations, and without exception, their jaws are on the floor. I mean, it's um, understanding what goes into our process for formulation development. opens their eyes to what is lacking elsewhere. So uh, this is this is the environment this has been my home for 16 years. This is where where I live and breathe and so I I I don't know um any different, right? I don't know how to advise somebody um without having that perspective, without having that extra data, without having that extra um information at my fingertips because our team has done it, because we've built it, because we've done those formulas. I can't imagine trying to provide uh, meaningful support to a pharmacy that's building formulations, even if it's um, on a periodic basis or a, on a daily basis, where they need to do something that's that's unique, that's not already documented elsewhere, um, or they needing to make changes or needing to troubleshoot something that is documented. How do you do that if you haven't done it right if you don't have that experience if you don't have that that support that that we get through that formulation team right the formulation development team that that spends their days and nights and weekends and their passion is is coming up with all of that and documenting it and and making sure that patients have access to that type of information
2: well the simple answer is you trial and error when it fails you have to either recreate it or you have to figure out what the problem was and if you're making multiple formulas a day and you're having multiple failures, you're going to go out of business really quick because you just, you don't have the capacity to make everything three to five times to figure out the best way to make it, make it work. And I think that that's where we've always kind of come from as a clinical perspective is we already know the formula database very well. We're super users of the database and we can share that information and when we're making variations. It's because we already have that, uh, content available. We also have a lot of formula notes behind the formulas that you don't see that we have access to. And we can already tell you some of the problems you're going to have before you experience it. And then some of us have a tremendous amount of failure experience personally, um, that we already know why we do things the way that we do. And that's why we'll say we can't, we can't make any promises. And this is why we will take it back for testing.
1: when we talk about formulation failures or or issues with formulations you know it's important to to put a little bit of of perspective what does that mean uh, if a formula fails does that mean that a patient was hurt or something like that that's not what we're talking about we're talking about the pharmaceutics of the formulation actually coming together so hey i i need to make drug X at a concentration of 15% in a in a liquid formulation for topical administration? Well, we've got to look at um, solubility parameters, what kind of solvents might be appropriate for use in that patient population on that um, you know, surface. If we're talking about topical administ- uh, administration, if we're applying it to the skin or the scalp or a mucosal surface or something like that, we've got to think about what would be necessary to solubilize the drug to Um, be safe or appropriate to apply to that surface of the skin if there are any ph adjustments if there are any um, other ingredients that need to go in into that uh, formulation it's it's those types of issues that we think about when we're thinking about a formulation failure Um, you know another example has to do with um API that are put into emulsion systems, right? So a cream uh, base, for example. And there are powder limitations. There might be a salt uh, of of an API that adds a particular degree of stress onto the emulsion system. And by doing so, it can cause the emulsion to break. It'll separate. Your oil and water phases um, don't, don't come back together. Those are the types of formulation failures that we're talking about. These are things that are experienced in the pharmacy level and typically identified before the patient receives it. Sometimes there 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 could be the poti- uh, potential for a patient to receive a pr- preparation and you know over the period of its shelf life it uh, they they experience something where the the formulation separates. That could be a formulation failure. Um, typically, these are not things that that result in patient harm. It's more an issue of uh, the, the pharmaceutics of it. Um, you know, falling apart before it was expected to, and then the, the pharmacy trying to, uh, to, to correct it.
2: Thank you for the clarification, AJ. I know I said failure and it's probably a lot of people are like, what does that mean? So thank you. Um, I'm thinking about things like oxidation and separation or, um, almost a, a super caking effect. Like you can have actually have thickening or precipitation of of molecules. So all of a sudden you've got like a disaster on your hand. It looks like cottage cheese and, and, and it's, and it's not the right color so there's a lot of failures that we're talking about that do not result in any sort of harm whatsoever so Mm -hmm. now back to back to the entire discussion though what happens when we make substitutions because this is where we start going and the term in Canada is off piste off trail and so we get a lot of these calls in our in our clinical services so I'm going to throw that one to you
1: well, like you said, our department fields lots of calls where we're troubleshooting um, to work with the pharmacies, helping them kind of come up with solutions, uh, plan of action. And sometimes it has to do with a formulation failure. It has to do with um, substitutions or, or pushing the limits of solubility on a formulation. Uh, you know, we, we had a department meeting this morning, and one of the topics of discussion was uh, solubility of a particular API and formulations that pharmacies are trying to prepare, and uh, this is used in, um, this is this is a minoxidil formulation, and sometimes they're trying to push the limits, you know, increase the concentration of minoxidil, or have combinations with different API, so your formulation gets a little bit crowded, while also getting to a high concentration of minoxidil. and. You know, there, there's a lot of troubleshooting that we go through. The, the requests from the pharmacies can be um, quite varied. So we've got to look at the solubility parameters. We've got to look at the solvents that are being used. And, you know, sometimes the, the pharmacies are saying, well, I need to push the limits, but also I don't want to use that solvent because my, my uh, patients and the prescribers are, don't like the feel of it, right? The, the feel on the skin is is not nice, Based off of their feedback, so they want to to avoid that solvent. So now we're dealing with limited solubility with a different solvent, while also then adding in more API. And so, what are the implications of trying to trying to push those limits? Right? We've got um, we've got boundaries that we are limited by right it's called so,
2: science chemistry yeah. boundaries yeah so it's there's in some cases there's
1: there's the 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 chemistry of the molecule right there's the ph limitations there's the solubility limitations there's the um pharmacokinetic parameters of the api so there are you know we can apply a degree of creativity to the scientific parameters that we're working with for the chemical so that we can find a way to apply the benefits of the of the drug molecule to meet the needs of the patient right why why we're compounding it, it, it and, and you know how are the commercial products not uh, solving the needs so uh, when we're talking about why we're compounding it and, and what all we can do there are limits um, and and we have to be very well aware of those and then we can we can try to apply some some unique um, scientific principles and chemistry to that to benefit our patient but we we've got to be cognizant of of where those limits are. And sometimes the conversations that we have are helping pharmacists or technicians understand what those limits are. So for example, if you look at a drug like minoxidil, there the USP Monograph for Minoxidil, and if you then also look at another resource such as the Merck Index and Martindale, and where they talk about solubility profiles, there's a range of solubility. So you could get a USP grade of this API that passes, and the solubility is fairly low, but it meets the specification. It's within range. It's just on the low end of that range, and that's perfectly acceptable per USP um there might be other instances where you know we we can communicate because we understand the needs of the API it's not just to say well i sold an api or provided a usp grade chemical but rather i need this to perform in a formulation that's the whole reason we have the api it's because that form it is needed in a formulation and that formulation is needed to provide a patient some benefit so do we need to add a specification to the API that says, hey, quality department, when we are when we are receiving batches of this, we need it to have this minimum solubility? And is this an extra parameter that we need to build into our acceptance criteria? So this is where the um, opportunity to have a conversation within the formulation development team, the clinical services team, and our quality control team, so that sourcing is now bringing in materials that meet our specific uh, needs, not just based off of a USP specification, but also keeping in mind a formulation requirement. So, uh, you know, and and there's a, there's a, there's a balance there, because not every formulation of that particular API might need that upper limit of solubility. So then do we risk rejecting some chemical because um, we're only wanting the top end of the solubility and then the inventory for the chemical in general becomes uh, you know, scant? So there, there is a balance there. All of that being said, I, I will say that typically we can, we can get our You know minoxidil to solubilize at a a particular concentration, and so when we're troubleshooting with pharmacies, they say, "Well, I'm not using it from you. I I I used a different source, and it's it's still USP." Okay, well, it might very well be USP, but not all USP has the same properties throughout. It must meet a minimum standard, and you know there's there's going to be a range, so there might be upper uh, limits on certain criteria as well. However it's important to note that you know when we 're talking about things like solubility or particle size or certain other um, parameters of of a, of a molecule that some of those are in a range, and so you could end up at the low end of the range or the high end of the range. also some of those might not even be described in the USp monograph the USp general Notices four point one talks about that where there are characteristics of substances that are not always described in the monograph, but might be very important to how that substance behaves in a formulation. And that is ultimately what we're interested in. We're not just interested in the chemical. It doesn't live in isolation by itself. We need that chemical to do something in a formulation so that we can be useful in a patient.
2: And those can extend from uh, solubility to particle size to uh, even um, structure so to speak.
1: Yeah, because, polymorphisms. Yep. yep. That's another big one.
2: And and we see this quite often because when we're troubleshooting, we will get these scenarios where like it's it's not solubilizing and it could be a, v- a range of chemicals. We've done it everything from diclofenac to ketamine to minoxidil to like take your pick and that solubility component or those, um, those chemical reactions that are, do occur are a result of these Sort of minimum standards that are being met and and utilized and be, still being acceptable USB chemicals, but then we've got formulation failures, not treatment failures, so to speak, or harm. But again, the the entire system is failing, and we're we're troubleshooting based upon these difficult parameters that we we weren't anticipating.
1: Yeah, it, it's really important that we have the USB standard. You know that standard-setting organization and the availability of that data helps set essentially your blueprint for strength quality purity identification of these these molecules we also should really acknowledge that that's not the full story so um we're we're not it, the, these things aren't just isolated widgets so that's where how that um, how that chemical meeting the minimum standard of usp is important however making sure that it meets the requirements for functionality in our formulation is equally important because if we just take drug molecule x usp um, that's great will it will it solubilize will it create the right um, type of formulation uh, once it's mixed in with the other components that we need it to 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 do that's the true question
0: i mean you know what's really what's really cool about listening to all this kind of separating it in my brain in three ways. There's the way that the product is manufactured and the, the specification that it adheres to there's how it reacts within our formulations. The one part that we haven't really discussed is where it was fabricated and where it was created. And I think that's also a a missing component that, you know, I'm not going to say brings on a whole ton of questions, but the reality is it's also part of the standards that we've abided by as an organization and all the critical points that we take into consideration when acquiring an API, how that manufacturer is validated, how the product is also under strict quality control, but beyond that, how it reacts in formulations. So in my opinion, it's kind of like a three-prong approach. So Ajin, do you want to talk about some vendor qualification and and things that are important to us that um, also gets brought into the equation. And also when we validate, I think this is an important part because it's, it's also consistency of manufacturing consistency of quality of product to react in that formulation um, over multiple lots of product over years of time, because we've become accustomed with those manufacturers. And I think that is really something to hone in on is that, we don't always buy a source because of a lower cost and alternate from vendor to vendor to vendor. That could potentially have implications amongst formula, formula validation and formula creation, but most importantly could have uh, a significance at the pharmacy level as well.
1: Yeah, that's a great point, Mike. Um, vendor qualifications are absolutely critical in in our field, right? I mean, how many pharmacies have the equipment to do their own um, QC and QA on the raw materials for identification and a lot of the other specifications that go along with the USP quality material, right? Very few. So there needs to be um, a an understanding of supply chain as well as qualification uh, from the wholesaler level. So Something that is a concern of mine is that the only requirement for being able to sell an API into the supply chain here in the U.S. is that the manufacturer registers with the FDA. Now, by registering, that manufacturer is essentially attesting that they are compliant with GMPs, with good manufacturing practices. So through going by by going through the registration process you you can now meet the requirements to sell your product into the United States your raw api there's no requirement that you have to have passed an FDA regulatory inspection before you can sell your product you just have to register that's a huge liability in my mind so it's really critically important to me that Part of our quality process at PCCA is that we do require that the facility have a recent inspection. So the facility can't just say, well, yeah, I was inspected back in 2015. Here's a copy of that inspection report. That's insufficient. That's too That's too old. And for API manufacturers, um, even if they're registered with the FDA, we need a recognized regulatory inspection and there's there are specific regulatory bodies that we and FDA uh, recognize and on top of that we do a lot of, a lot of other checks on the uh, on the facility and on the material itself so Without going in, into too much detail about all of the the extra balance uh, checks and balances that that we go through to qualify those vendors, um, I'll I'll put in a plug here. There's a website that you can check out that outlines uh, most of this. It's called the PCCA standard. Um, if you've got questions about it, give us a call. We we're happy to 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 walk you through it. The crux of the issue is that the Ability to have a facility that has been inspected is absolutely critical, and I hope that that is uh, the importance of that is weighing heavy on your mind. It's not just that they're registered, but they have had to have experienced and pass a recent regulatory inspection before they they can be considered as as one of our suppliers. And then once we receive it. Um, the process doesn't end. They're not just qualified in perpetuity. So we require a recent inspection in perpetuity. They've got to have a new inspection, and they've got to provide that passing inspection report to us. We monitor import alerts. We monitor for all sorts of recalls, 483s. If they're if they have received a 483 or a warning letter, there's a additional communication and documentation that we require, including the steps that they're doing that they're undertaking to address the warning letter issue. So there's a lot of different pieces that go along with our vendor qualification process, and it's not a one and done. So every time we receive a material, even if it's from a vendor that's domestic here in the United States, and we've been doing business with them for 40 years, it doesn't matter. They are immediately placed on quarantine, and our entire qualification process um, must commence every single time without exception, every batch of every chemical, not just APIs. We, we quarantine every batch of every ingredient that we receive. And I think that's really important. Um, if If my child is your patient, that's what I would expect for the quality of the materials that you're using. I think you would expect that for your family member as well so the the quality of your your starting material I think is is critical and when we talk about substitutability and and issues that are experienced, sometimes we identify that it has to do with well, I was using uh, product from vendor A, and now I'm using product from vendor Y, and that's where I'm experiencing the difference. But hey, it's still labeled the same. It's still labeled as, you know, product A USP. Um, well, th- that doesn't mean that everything about it is the same.
0: And That's why I really wanted to hit on the the manu- manufacturer qualification piece and the requalification that is done in the back end from a quality assurance and regulatory affairs aspect, because it's so comprehensive. And I, I think to your point, and you talked about how, you know, there's a concern and you and I have spoken about this offline. We're very well versed on this topic. The concern is that all is created equal at all times. And and the reality is there are so many different components and different angles to look at everything. And that's why I wanted to hit on that third prong of where a product is potentially manufactured because that is so important to our standard. But in there, um, we have forged relationships with manufacturers for years based on their good standing according to CGMPs, their adherence to uh, regulatory inspections. And then in there, having a long relationship Ensuring lot consistency, so that an individual will not see a different product or a different powder from us every single lot, because we're not just in a race to the bottom. To your point, AJ, it's it's not simply a cost decision; it is a quality decision first and foremost.
1: Yeah, if I if I put myself in the shoes of a regulator, um, the the two buckets of concern have to do with the quality of your starting material, and then the quality of your operations, what you're doing in your own pharmacy and handling those materials to prepare your finished compound. So at, at PCCA, we take a great deal of effort to ensure the, the quality of your starting material and to be very transparent in our process. Um, and. and all that we go through in uh, qualifying and re-qualifying on an ongoing basis, the vendors that we work with and how we even disqualify vendors uh, periodically, how we reject materials, how we accept materials, how we even once we've repacked uh, a material, everything gets retested again to make sure that the integrity of that substance is maintained while it's in our custody. So having, having a honest discussion about all of those pieces. And then of course, the training aspect and and educating all of the pharmacies out there on the risks in operational efficiencies and competencies when they're actually doing the compound, whether that's uh, sterile or non-sterile hazardous or non-hazardous, making sure that they're not just looking at USP. While USP is the the standard, that's the minimum standard. And the new versions of of chapter 795 and 797 are very explicit about describing those standards as the minimum that a pharmacy should be achieving. Um, So we talk about not just USP, but also FDA's guidance documents and other components of federal statute and enforcement. And we look at FDA 483s and warning letters and, and try to teach the pharmacies. Of what what can you learn as you as you read through these and and things you might need to implement and SOPs you might need to update for your own operations? Um, what are those risks? And ultimately, putting all of that together to create a set of best practice standards. So there's the minimum standard, and then there's all the stuff we can learn outside of the standard to to develop our own best practices and build our targets and our SOPs around those best practices. And that's really our goal, is not to meet a minimum standard, but to exceed that so we're truly doing something that is meaningful for patient care and not putting patients at risk. Our focus has to be on, on the patient's needs first and foremost.
0: Honestly, Adrian, I think that was so well summarized. You mentioned where to find a lot of this information from formula validation from quality control, quality assurance, regulatory affairs, everything that goes into all this is available on the PCCA standard and that's available through our pccrx.com website. Highly encourage everyone to learn more about it because that's really the journey of what happens on the back end before an item is even received before it is it is even looked at from a, f- a formula um and how it ends up in the database and how it's revised year after year after year and you mentioned that that the i think Gus had been on the podcast at one point he said it's it's a living it's a living thing it's a living catalog or recipe book that you know is constantly looked at constantly uh, revised for, for a variety of reasons. And I think you covered that well. I think it was a really good educational piece for those that assume that everything is the same and is an apple is an apple is an apple. And the reality is more often than not, it's not the case, but it also bleeds into your world. Um, when you're trying to help out pharmacies and troubleshooting, uh, when things don't go ideally right. And when they don't look right, feel right. And, and how you guys jump in and, and support, our membership. So thank you, thank you both for walking through that journey because I think it was definitely an eye-opening experience for most. Um I always have something to learn. I know it's one of my favorite topics to discuss. And who better to have than AJ to come back and, and discuss it in detail. So thanks so much for coming back, AJ. I
1: appreciate the invitation. It's always a pleasure.
0: And for those of you that um do you have any interest in potential membership and you know have been thinking about joining um, and then want a better understanding of how you know the formula database functions and and all that backend information. If you do need more uh, more info, more data, uh, and you would like to get a better understanding of how to navigate that database, uh, go to www.pccarx.com. You can click on the membership tab, and a member of our recruiting team. We'll gladly walk you through our members-only website and give you a better understanding of everything that is available on the back end. But thanks again, AJ, for doing this. Thanks again, Seb. And thanks again to all of you who tuned into this episode. As always, follow us along on social media, whether that's LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And remember, to hit that subscribe button so that you don't miss an episode. Until next time, this is Mike Delisio. Thanks for listening.